Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, these words that you speak um, in, in the prophet Isaiah, these words that you speak to us are words of comfort. They are words of hope. And I pray that you would um, break through um, the callousness that sometimes is true of our hearts, maybe even the cynicism and that you would open our eyes uh, to the true hopefulness, the reality of your promise of love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, pride goes before a fall. We've probably heard this multiple times. Uh, it's perhaps one of the most proven proverbs in the Bible, right? We, we know countless stories in history of where you have people who have this unhealthy sense of arrogance, this unwillingness to hear criticism, choices that they make without there being an awareness of the problems, and suddenly it all comes crashing down, whether that's stories of nations or stories of individuals. Pride goes before a fall. We, we know that there's some truth to that. But the question I want us to ask this morning is what happens after that? So pride goes before a fall. What comes after the fall? When, when the bubble has burst, when we are brought crashing down, or when people are brought crashing down, what comes next? Is all that is left despair or cynicism? Or after everything has come crashing down, is there the possibility of hope? In some ways, I would say that's kind of the question of the moment. Because it seems to me that we are in a time as a nation of being brought low, of, of being humbled. 
If you're my age or older, you might remember a time, probably about a generation ago, where things just seemed impossibly good. The Soviet Union was just coming apart. The Berlin Wall had come down. Technology seemed like it was exploding in potential. The economy was doing well. And it seemed like anything was possible for us. Do you remember that? I don't know really anyone who seems to think that today. We've gone, I think, from a sense of feeling like progress is inevitable to an awareness of problems that seem unsolvable. Perhaps you've seen in the news the, the news of how we're having an increasing number of deaths of despair, suicides, alcohol, drug abuse caused by loneliness and poverty. We're aware of deep racial injustice issues, economic inequity, concerns about the environment. These problems are big, and where do we go to solve them? Like, what can we look to to give us hope? I mean, next year's iPhone is going to have a better camera. We can now go from high def to ultra high def for our TV, so that should make things better, right? I mean, Technology doesn't seem to offer what it used to. Do we look at our politicians? They, they certainly don't seem like they have clarity together. They can't get along. Do we look at our economy? Where do we go now that we are being humbled? It seems like we are powerless. We have been brought low. I would say, actually, there's something true about that with the church as well. If you go back a couple generations, the church, the church within America, was seen as this respectable, honorable institution. Whether or not one went to church, they were glad that it was a part of society. They saw it bring kind of a, a moral depth to, to, the, to our nation. But we know that's not really how it's viewed, right? Now, now there's an increasing number of people who do not identify with any organized religion, and what's more, the church itself is oftentimes looked down on. And if we are honest, that's largely the church's fault with, with its hypocrisy, with its abuse of power, with, with leaders who sometimes don't seem to believe the very things that they're preaching. We've been brought low. Individually, we also understand a little bit about what it means to be humbled don't we? Those of us who have at least lived a number of years. Many of us have gone through the process that I think is almost inevitably with getting older where we start realizing that the problems are not as much outside of ourselves as they are within. As we become aware of our own failings and brokenness. And we are brought low. Pride goes before a fall. But what comes after? We are now kind of at a midpoint in the book of Isaiah. In some ways, you can see the entire book of Isaiah having two parts with just kind of like this middle interlude. And really, the first part you could entitle, Pride Goes Before a Fall. And the second part you can say, and here's what happens after. Uh, Pride Goes Before a Fall is really what we have been seeing in the chapters that we have worked through as we've been walking through Isaiah. The pride of God's people, as Ahaz and others have, have turned to idolatry, as they've trusted in themselves, as they trusted in nations, and as God keeps speaking to them again and again, how they disregard God's warning. And this wasn't a surprise to God, or a surprise to Isaiah even, because God tells Isaiah, when he calls Isaiah to be a prophet to his people, he says, Go and speak to them, but you should know that everything you say to them will only seem like it makes things worse because they're going to be more and more hardened to what you have to say. 
And Isaiah, understandably discouraged by basically being told, you will fail, says, for how long, O Lord? And God says, until the cities lie in ruins, until I've sent all the people away, until they are brought low. And if we were to just back up just a few verses before the ones that were just read this morning, in chapter 39, we would see God specifically telling Isaiah, here's what's going to happen. The nation of Babylon is going to come and is going to destroy Judah, sending them into exile. And a hundred years later, a hundred years actually after Isaiah dies, that is exactly what takes place. The city of Jerusalem, the city that has been saved before, is besieged by the mighty nation of Babylon. And you, if you're familiar with besieging means, it's the army surrounds the city so that no one can get out, and they don't worry about attacking, they just wait. And for weeks upon weeks, the people in the city wait as well, running out of food, slowly starving, slowly being weakened until finally one day, Babylon almost mercifully comes in and takes the walls down and destroys the city. I mean, destroys the city. Houses upon houses are burned. Palaces are burned. And as, as the people look to the center of their city, to the most important part, to the temple, they see the temple in flames and being destroyed. And just a day or two later, without them having a chance to even register what takes place, the people are taken away in this caravan by the soldiers off to a distant land where they have to live in exile. Can you imagine the trauma of having had to go through months of starving before seeing your home destroyed and suddenly you are whisked away? Some of your family members have been killed. How do you make sense of what's just taken place? We actually see, we have at least a few of the songs that they wrote in this time of just trying to grieve and deal with trauma. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, so this is written by the exiles, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. We wept when we remembered Zion. There our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You can imagine, they're, they're grieving, they're weeping, and some of the Babylonians say, oh yeah, what was that song about Zion you used to believe in? Was it like Isaiah said that one day, Isaiah, you know, Zion will be great, it'll be a mountain, all the nations will come. How about you sing us one of those songs? And so they write, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. You know what this sounds like? When, when someone has lost a loved one, one of their fears is that they will forget. And so I will not forget. I will remember this person. That's what they are singing about because a death has happened. A death of hope. Their hope was in God. Their hope was in the temple. And it's all crumbled down Pride has gone before a fall. What happens next? It's into this context, into this bleak situation, that God calls Isaiah a second time. This is likely near the end of Isaiah's life. And remember, Isaiah will not see this moment. This is going to happen a hundred years from now. But even still, 
God is saying, I want you to write to them so that when they are ready to hear it, they can hear my words. And again, God calls Isaiah to confront his people with something that seems absolutely impossible to believe, even more confrontational, if you will, than the words he said before. God wants to confront his people with hope. That's the new calling of Isaiah. Did you notice at the very beginning, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What do you do when you have seen your hope crushed, when pride has come down and you've fallen? What do you think God's people have done when they are weeping by the waters of Babylon? You don't stay weeping forever. At a certain point, you have to get on with your life. And I imagine God's people, while they are in Babylon, look probably a lot like the people around here do, where they, where they just kept busy because that's what you have to do for survival. They kept distracting themselves because what else are you going to do? What they wouldn't do is think about the big picture. What they wouldn't do is try to hold on to anything that was hopeful because anything that is hopeful is just going to destroy you eventually. And yet God tells Isaiah, comfort them, give them hope. And what's interesting is, do you realize that, did you notice that even Isaiah himself is resistant to this message? We see this if we jump down to verse 6. If you don't have the passage in front of you, I invite you to do so. Verse 6, there's a conversation, and here's how the conversation goes. It says, a voice says cry, and, and that voice, I think, is an angelic voice telling Isaiah, I want you to cry out. And what does Isaiah say in response? What shall I cry? What do I have that I can possibly say? I have said everything. Notice what he goes on to say. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty, literally its faithfulness, is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have tried. I have spoken. I have sought people's repentance. And sometimes it seems like they're about to turn and then it just all falls apart. People are so fickle. They're so faithless. What can I possibly say that is worth it? Isaiah is jaded. He is cynical because he has seen the failure of people. And, and here's the response. And here, I believe, is the very heart of this morning's passage. Verse 8. The grass withers. The flower fades. This is an acknowledgement. Yes, you are right. These things are ephemeral. If, you, if you're trusting in human progress, it is going to be a fool's errand that you are on. But there is something you haven't thought about, Isaiah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And the word of our God, as we see in these verses, is a word of love. Now, I should say, it's important for us to understand that, that when God speaks, it's a very different thing from when someone like you or I speak. So if I am telling our kids, hey, you know what, for, for this summer, we should think about going on vacation, say, to like Tennessee or something like that. They, they yeah, that'd be good, but they, they understand the kind of speech it is. I might forget that I've said that. I might change my mind. Or even if that seems like a good idea and I want to do it, I might just not be able to do it. 
That's how our words work. That is not how God's word works. When God says something, there is no gap between his speaking and the fact that it will happen. Let there be light, he says, into nothing, and light appears. His word is powerful, and his word is unchanging. He does not hem and haw. He does not have two minds of things. Once he has decided, it is as certain as anything possible to conceive of. That, that is God's word. And what is God's word? God is telling Isaiah, here, here is why you speak. Not because you can trust in human progress, because you can't, but because I have spoken and I have determined that I am going to love this people. That's what this entire song, these entire 11 verses, it is, a, it is a love song. It is God's commitment of love. Let me just kind of go through it quickly with you to show you how we see this again and again. Notice immediately after he says, comfort my people, God says, because I love you, I am not going to let your past enslave you. You know, I, um, I find one of the, the worst words in the English language is regret. Right? Regret is a terrifying idea. The idea that there are things that we have done that will forever affect us in our future. That we can feel bound by our mistakes. And God says, I am going to free you from your regret. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Tell them that whatever they have done, no matter how terrible it is, it is now behind them. He doesn't explain how this can be. He doesn't explain how this can all suddenly be wiped away. But what he is declaring is that no matter what has happened, it is now removed. You are no longer beholden to your past. You're no longer enslaved by the mistakes you've made. You are free, you know. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is known as the love passage, and it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And God says, I am not keeping any record of what you have done wrong. And then it goes on, and God declares that he is going to, because he loves us, he loves his people, he's going to come to them. You know how you can sometimes discover if someone is a very important person? It's that you cannot get a hold of them if they are a very important person. You can talk to their assistants. If you have questions, their assistants will deal with it. If you have a problem, their assistant will deal with it because they are too important for you. But do you notice that is not what God says? It says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And just a few verses later, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is saying, I am coming to you. I'm not going to just send an angel. He could send an angel to kind of fix the problems. But he says, no, I'm going to come personally to you. Because you are not just an item in my cosmic to-do list. You are the people that I love. And so I'm coming. And do you notice how this loving God comes? Do you, did you notice the gentleness? Verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak to her heart. I know how fragile she is right now. Speak gently. Or perhaps even more remarkably in verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. God says, when I come, I will grab you and hold you to myself so that you might feel safe because I love you. And finally, we see him promising that he will gently lead his people. I will not leave you in the situation that you are in. When I come, I will bring you to the place that you need to go. I will save you. I will rescue you. Do you you see this again and again? God declares that he is committed to love. I got to say, I, I find preaching on God's love a challenging thing. And let me tell you why. Because I think probably many of us have heard this frequently. And I think we've heard it so much that that we have kind of two kinds of response, both of which deflect the reality of this. One is at times to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. God loves us. Which of course it doesn't. And the only reason we say that is because sometimes we have not wrestled with just how much it shouldn't make sense. Just how how prideful we are. We haven't maybe been brought to the place to realize how unlikely it would be that the God of the universe would love us. But the other response, I think, which is perhaps even more common and certainly the response of my heart, is deep down we go, I'm not sure that's true. I I have a really hard time believing that's true. Because it doesn't make sense. The God of the universe, who knows every star by name, would be interested in me? Me who has been so faithless to him. And God says, you don't need to believe this because it makes sense to you. You need to believe this because I have said it. And if I say it, there is nothing more certain. Now the great thing about him having said this thousands of years ago is we actually get to see what he means by it as he continues to live it out in this life. So after he makes these promises, 60 years after God's people are in exile, God does what he says he will do. He, he goes to his people, he comes to them, and he leads them out of exile, showing that he has forgiven them, and he brings them home in a way that they would never have expected. But, but there's an aspect, if we are really paying attention to the promises here, that we realize that what God is saying in these verses as he declares his love is bigger than simply a return from exile, that the problems are bigger than just geographical, that there is a distance in people's heart caused by sin, that there is something more significant that God is declaring when he says his commitments here in these verses. And that's why hundreds of years later, when John the Baptist, whom you might know from the New Testament, when he is in the wilderness, we we read from the gospel writers, this is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This, This is what Isaiah was talking about. Get ready. And in the following verses, we understand even more as Jesus steps into the scene. We, we, as we look at the story of Jesus, realize just how seriously God meant the words that he said. When he said, your iniquities are pardoned. He was talking about actually his son taking away our sins completely. Not just so that we no longer have those consequences of the exile, but that we no longer have to worry about our sins at all because they have dealt with once and for all with Christ taking the punishment for them on the cross. And and that continues to be the way he forgives us. 
When, when he said, I will come to you, he came to us. He became one of us. The Son of God experienced life in this world. He revealed himself to us in person because of love. And he continues to come to us. Even right now, do you realize, because Jesus has sent his Spirit, that God is present right now among us, speaking to our very souls. And he comes with gentleness. We read that he says he will, get, you know, it says he will carry, gather his lambs, the lambs into his arms. What do we see with Jesus? It says when the children come, he gathers these children, these lambs into his arms. And what does he say? He says, come to me, you are weary, because I am gentle. And if you have walked seeking to trust in Christ for years, you have come to experience that gentleness. Haven't you think of how patient our Lord is with you as he teaches us the same things again and again? And he allows us to grow slowly and he continues to be kind to us. He is gentle. And when Christ came, he came to establish a way and he continues to lead us back home. And by that, I'm not talking about he leads us to our death. I'm saying he leads us into ourselves. He makes us whole again. He is, he is rebuilding his community through church, as stumbling as it is throughout the world. There are signs of life and growth as God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And the reason I want us to see this is because if we just take a step back and think about it, what we see is 3,000 years of God continuing to do exactly what he said he would do. 3,000 years showing that when God says he will do something, it is as good as done because nothing is more certain than the word of God. Flesh might fail, grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. And if we can see this, then you and I have something so extraordinarily precious, something that our world hungers and thirsts for. You and I have hope. And not just vague, wishing kind of hope, but certainty. Certainty, not just that as we look at this world, we know it's going to be okay. But actually, as we look at this world, we know it's going to be good. It's going to be very good. Because God has said it will. And if we can recognize that we don't just become more optimistic, we actually are enabled to start living a life of hope. See, that's, that's the hardest part when hope is ripped from people. That's the hardest part when you're brought down and you don't have anything left. A life of cynicism is a life of aimlessness. What do you do if you have nothing to hope in? You just distract yourself until you're done. But that's not our story. If we have hope, if we know that God is doing something good, if we know that there is good that is taking place and good that is in our future, then we can look and say, how can I be a part of this? Then we can be given purpose. Did you notice that's also what we see in these verses? 
Even as God says, here's the words of hope, what does he say right after? He essentially says, get to work. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now that you know I'm coming, get it ready. Oh, you, Jerusalem, Zion, go up to the top of the mountains and tell everyone that God is coming. Now that you have hope, get to work. Because when we have a God-given hope, we have a God-given purpose. And so the question I think we are to be left with as we, we hear the reality that God's word for us is love and his word is real and the hope is true is what does it look like for us individuals and for us as a church to be a part of this work. You know, the Apostle Paul, as he is writing um, to the Corinthian church, he is writing to them at one point about the hope they have, saying this resurrection that Christ has done, it is real, and just as his body will raise, so your bodies will be raised. This hope is real. And you know how he concludes? He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because you know that hope is real. And so what I want to invite us even now to do is to turn to God in prayer and ask him, Lord, what would you have us do? With this hope that you have given, maybe it involves us acknowledging our cynicism, our lack of trust, but maybe it also involves us looking to see what God is calling us to do to be a part of the work he is doing in this world. I invite you to spend a couple minutes in silence, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a moment's time.